Um, Pastor Dan and Elizabeth were with us for a number of years in Winnipeg where we worked together. And uh, then we sort of decided to leave some of our responsibilities that way and come and live a little closer to one of our sons who is pastoring in Pinoka. And we ended up in the metropolis of Delburn and uh, having a good time and enjoying it there. You've probably heard about just picking up a draught or those big backhoes and coming into the credit union and trying to pull out the cash machine. They just did that, I think, last Sunday night. So in Delburn, we say, if you want to cash in on your opportunities, come visit us. And you can pull out anything there. Eve and I are glad to be with you today. And uh, we trust that as we look at God's word, we'll understand a little bit more of God's plan and direction for our lives as we come into this week. It's unrelenting, and it happens every day, and it's continuous in its pressure. It's not just that it happens every day, it's there perpetually for us. And we wrestle against it and try to figure out what it is, and we're always pushing back against evil, wickedness, dishonesty, selfishness. And as we try to figure out this whole thing, there's sort of an attitude out there in society that it's not organized necessarily, but somehow it coalesces around certain things and people just gather around the wrong things, it seems. And you and I notice that the world has now changed and what was once white is now black and what's black is white and everything's mixed up as we try to figure out what's going on. Justice is not justice anymore. There was a number of years ago in Charlotte, North Carolina, that a man purchased a box of rare cigars. Uh, very expensive, and I know that's not from your church, so don't worry about it. And he insured them against fire, and among other things. And within a month, he had smoked all of those cigars, and without having even made his first premium payment on that insurance. And then he went to the insurance company and claimed that he had lost his cigars, lost in a series of small fires. Uh, the insurance company refused to pay, uh, citing the obvious reason, that the man had consumed the cigars in the normal fashion. The man sued the insurance company and won. In delivering the ruling, the judge agreed that the claim was frivolous, and he stated, nevertheless, that the man held a policy from the company in which it had warranted that the cigars were insurable and also guaranteed that it would insure against fires without defining what is considered to be an unacceptable fire and that they were obligated to pay the claim. So the insurance company, rather than fighting this uh, any further in an appeal process, uh, accepted the ruling and paid the man 15000 for the rare cigars that he had lost in the quote-unquote fires. After the man had cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. <laughs> As you and I walk in this world, we see evil making its way through, and we wonder what ridiculous things are going on. And God seems to say to us that the devil constantly paints himself into the corner. And just when you and I think that the devil is running the show, God steps in and does things with a different twist. And in this world, as you and I walk along, we try to figure out how God is moving in this process. How do we, 
There we go. Okay, I'm learning how that machine works. Excellent. Jesus, as you and I walk in this world, takes exception to this world that is around you and me. But we also discover something else, that the world takes exception with Jesus. And so as you see this happening, we begin to understand that there is a battle that is constantly brewing every day in our lives as we walk along with him. Now, it's impossible for you and for me to recognize what's going on, but God says to us, it's, you can never solve this problem in a sense right now. Because the devil will never stay out of God's work, and God will never stay out of the devil's work, and we're both in the same space, and there's this collision and this conflict that is constantly going on. And if you live by the way the world does, on team world, if we can put it that way, there are more people on Team World. They have a louder voice. They control the media. They do a variety of things. And so you say, how do we stand against all this? And so there's Team Jesus, and then there's Team World. And the Team World does not play by the rules. It goes by the rule that whatever I want to do, I do. Whether it's selfish or not, I will follow that way. Team Jesus, though, has a whole different basis of operation. And so it's an unfair playing field that we're wrestling with as we live in this world. And so God comes along and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. And if you have your Bibles, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, we're going to just briefly go through them, picking out a few things here and there this morning to understand the significance of what God wants us to do. So when you come to John chapter 14, Team Jesus is losing its star player. Jesus is about to be crucified. And as Jesus is there, he's going to be taken out, and there's going to be no time out. Things are going to still keep happening in this world. But they're going to be seriously hampered because Jesus is going to be gone. Now, with Jesus gone and losing your star player, as it were, God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send in my substitute. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. And he's going to come, and he's going to come and help Team Jesus along in the process. And God knows that Team World is moving towards a full defeat, but he says to his people, you don't maybe see that all the time, and it's going to be kind of blurry, so I want to give you my spirit to remind you of the truths of my word and how I operate so that you can follow along with me. And in his strategy, he's going to do this. He's going to give us a message that we are going to grumble about, complain about, and not accept because we don't like it. But he's going to say trouble, that which you and I generally do not want, is going to be the tool that he's going to use which God will use so that the world might recognize who God really is. And it's through that trouble that God is seen in a new and in a fresh way that could not be seen probably in any other fashion. And so he lays out for us a number of things in God's word, and we're going to just sort of pick things from these chapters as we go through them. Notice what he says to us in the first verse of chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. A little later on in the chapter. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. If you drop to the end, chapter 16, it says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, trouble is that which unsettles you and me. And when we're unsettled, God says, okay, now it's not normal. And in that time, God reorients our lives, shakes us up a bit, changes the dynamics within our life. And this is the time where God begins to work in a special and in a unique way. Jesus is at the height of his popularity just a little while ago. He's wowing the people with miracles. He's having great, as it were, evangelistic crusades. Miracles are happening. He is at a celebrity status. And then God comes along, and in the script that he has written, because this is the scriptures, so it's the script that God has written for you and for me to direct our lives. And in this script, God is saying to his people that Jesus is not going to be put on the injured list. Jesus is going to be put on the dead list. And so he says, now with Jesus, in the midst of all this trouble, he's going to be taken out of the picture. And so he's saying to him, watch what Jesus does when the trouble comes so that you and I might learn how to respond to him. And he says to us, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. And you say, wow, that's really nice. Uh, you see all that coming down the pike. How is that ever going to happen? He says, no, I'm going to give you peace in that process. But he says, it's not as the world gives peace. It's going to be a different kind of peace. He says, in the world, there's negotiations going on in the world today that we would have peace. And we're sort of, you give me this, I'll give you that. Just talking to one of our former friends in the Ukraine when we were there. And uh, his son is in the Ukrainian army. We were talking this past week, I think, Thursday. And his son is in the orchestra, um, in the music side of the army. And he said, in our city of Dnipropetrovsk, uh, called Dnipro, if you would just follow the news lately, they got bombed um, just a few days ago. He said, uh, the orchestra, has, they have a funeral once a week in the city, a city of about three-quarters of a million people. There are 20 to 30 people every time they do a funeral, soldiers that they're burying. That's just in one city in Ukraine. 20 to 30 that are dying every week. And so you begin to recognize that peace there is not going to happen very easily because there's negotiations going on. God says, no, when I give you peace, it's going to be very different. It's going to be a gift. He says, you and I look at symptoms. God says, no, we're going to deal with the root cause so that there'll be genuine peace. The world tries to suppress things and say that's peace, and God says, no, we're going to come and we're not going to suppress things. We'll forgive them and wash them away. The world deals with that which is outside the circumstances. God says, let me get right into your heart and deal with you in a very different way. The world gives us temporary peace. God says, no, I'm going to give you eternal peace. The world looks at peace and says, well, it depends on the circumstances. And God says, no, it depends on what my son did on the cross a long time ago. 
And so when he says to us these things about peace, understand that it's a very different world that God is talking about. And he's saying to you and to me as we walk along, look at what's happening so that you and I might understand what is going on. As believers, we are not always favored in society. And this is a little bit longer portion of God's word, but follow it in John chapter 15. If the world, notice the next word, what is it? Go ahead, hates. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Then notice as he drops down a bit to verse 22. They have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. And then drop down right to the bottom. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. Those are rather interesting words that God has given to us. You see, hatred, which is simply trouble with an attitude, is often senseless. But, and what you and I need to recall, the people behind that hatred are valuable. And so Jesus says, as he's looking at his life ending, he says, the world hates me. But Jesus has a concern for those very people who hate his guts. And Jesus is now looking at them and saying, okay, how do we work with this all? Few of us appreciate radical change. And as we scramble through life, we have people screaming to be radical and to do things you know, way back the way it was done in the book of Acts or things like that. And we say, you know, if you really want to live life, you've got to be radical for God. And it's true. You do. You have to. Now, radicalness is very different than the way the world defines radicalness for Jesus. You see, Jesus was so radical that he always told the truth. Always. There was never a time when Jesus did not tell the truth. So radical was Jesus that when it was convenient for him to lie to get out of trouble, he said, no, I will be radical and I will tell the truth at all times. So radical was Jesus that Jesus never once was unfaithful to his father. Never once did he turn around and say, Dad, I don't think I want to do what you're asking me to do. Never once did Jesus come along when there was a person who was bothering him and say, I will not love you. You see, Jesus was so radical that he was always the one who cared, who always was honest, who always loved, who was always faithful, who was always truthful. He was radical to the nth degree. And so radical was Jesus that his radicalness showed our unradicalness, and we didn't like a perfect person, and so we put him on the cross. And God comes through in this all and says, do you realize what is happening in society? For some reason, you and I can look at a perfect individual who does everything right, who does everything good, who is perfect in all his ways, and we will not like him. 
And you see, why? Why is it that we who have been created in the image of God can turn around and not like doing things right? You see, if I were to give you a bottle of water today and put some dirt in it and say, drink it, you would say you're crazy. And you're right. But morally, when we're asked and we think, well, you know what, I can just look at this and it's dirty for a little bit, but I can take it in, we say it's okay. And so there's a big dichotomy in our hearts and in our lives that we go, what is going on that we can sort of come along in this process and go a very different way when we know it's the wrong way? And so God comes through and tells us this, that if the world hates you, notice what it says right at the end. They hated me, what? Without reason. And so what you and I discover within our lives is that as we come through this whole process, that irrational hatred does not need to explain why it hates. It just hates. And there's something in the human heart, and we know what it is, that just turns people off, even on that which is right, good, holy, and pure. And you and I face this, and we say, okay, how do we handle this all? How do we live through this all? So is it true then that irrational love does not need to explain why it loves? It just does. And I think God says to us something a little different. He says, no, it does need to explain. And it needs to give to us an understanding of what God is doing in the process. And so God says, this is what I did. And we just celebrated it this morning. He said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And anyone who eats my flesh will live forever. See, people matter to God. And so God says, in the midst of irrational hatred, he says, I want you as my people to come along and act differently. Now, Jesus is no idealist. He's a realist. And so he understands what is going on. And he knows there's trouble there's plenty of trouble all around. And he says, now, how are you going to deal with irrational hatred? People that just don't like Christianity, don't like Jesus, but don't know anything about him. But they still don't want to come to him. And so Jesus says, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to send trouble into your life. You're not going to always like it. But it's going to be the tool through which God is going to be clearly recognized for you and for me. And he says, the way this is going to work is you're going to have to embrace radicalness that you're going to come along and display for the world what God is all about. And so Jesus now takes this big theory, quote unquote, and brings it down to practicality within our lives. And he starts to explain to us how this all works. His words. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Here is the key to how you and I love those who are irrational in their hatred for God. So just a bit of foolishness this morning, if you will, with me, please. So the devil is the one who is the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. 
And uh, I'm not sure who does your janitorial, but we'll just do this so I do not need to be paying for them today. And so God says, what happens in this world for you and for me as we walk along is we recognize that God works in his unique ways. And so what he says to you and to me is something like this. If the devil throws dirt, trouble that is, he says to us, then whatever you do, don't waste it. So, you're doing a business deal with a dealer in town. And this never happens in three hills. But they shaft you. Uh, that's not a good word Sunday morning, but they do. And so they throw dirt into your life. You go and you argue with your spouse. Heaven forbid that we ever do that, but it happens. And then you criticize them, and you throw dirt into their lives. Someone else comes along and steals from you, and you go, oh, more dirt. You have an argument with another person in life. You look at three, uh, through life, and you say, oh, this is happening, and I don't like it. And dirt is constantly thrown by the devil into your life and mine. And so as we throw the dirt time and time, people throw the dirt time and time at us, we go, God, would you at least give me a break from what is going on? Why do I have to face this? And so God says, okay, understand what is happening here. He says, when people throw dirt at you, don't waste the dirt. And so what he says, what I want you to do is the dirt that is thrown into your lives, those situations where you are taken advantage of and unfairly treated, he says, don't waste the dirt. He says, I want you to gather up the dirt. And he says, what I want you to do is take the dirt that they have thrown at you. And he says, I want you to plant a gospel flower. Don't waste the dirt of trouble. It is from which the gospel blossoms and the flower of the gospel penetrates into the hearts of those around us. And God says to us many times, people have done to us what is undeserved in our lives, but he says, don't. Don't waste the dirt. Because that's the opportunity that God has given to us to demonstrate the uniqueness and the radicalness of the gospel when no one else would think it should be there. And so God says, use the dirt, don't waste it, because here's how you demonstrate the radicalness of the love of God within our lives. And he gives us the detail of how this works. And notice the words. He that is the devil has no hold on me. And so Jesus says, the devil is playing these games. He's doing his strategy out there. And he says, as he throws this dirt within your lives, Jesus says, the devil doesn't scare me. Why? Because he says, in my heart and in my life, as I walk through, there is no weakness there is no flaw. There is no attraction to that sin that, it, that is there. And as the devil attacks Jesus in the most brutal way, Jesus says, I have closed the door on every area where the devil is trying to probe within my heart and within my life. 
And Jesus says, even if he brings to me death, I will say, I would rather die listening to my father, so radical is his love for his father, that I will not compromise my stand with God. I will walk with my father in all his ways. And so Jesus uses the devil and his props to get across God's point. Because he says that's where the radicalness of the gospel is carried out in its unique fashion and in its unique way. So that people might see where God is moving and God is leading us in that practice. And so when we look at Jesus, we say, what is so radical about Jesus on this point? And it's those words, the devil has no hold on me. Jesus did not give the devil any opportunity or any territory to plant his thoughts into his mind or in his life. He was so radical that Jesus went out fully, completely, always in obedience, always following the script chores that God had laid out. And Jesus walks through this whole process, and he says, I will walk, no sin, no wrong. I will give the devil no opportunity in this hall. And so you and I say, that's nice. That's the Son of God. He's perfect. Um, we're not perfect. And how do we walk along with this God and follow him in our world when we are not that way ourselves? And so God says, well, here's what happens in those moments. He says, when you wrestle with all that is going on, understand what Jesus understood. The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. The world must learn. You see, how are people going to know who Jesus is if he doesn't use you and me? And so God says, I'm going to take you, and what I'm going to do is through your lives, when people throw mud and dirt at you, it's going to be you that the world will learn the uniqueness of who God truly is in these circumstances of our lives. And so he says, what I want you to do is in these times, let yourself be actively soaked in radical love. Now, let's just go back to that word radical for a minute. Radicalness today is uh, bungee jumping off a bridge, right? Uh, whitewater rafting where you die, and uh, a few other things. Zip, line, zip lining. That's not radicalness. In my mind, at 68, that's stupidity. Okay, uh, And I have no insurance that will save me from that. And so you sit back and you say, ooh, what is really going on? So what's happened is... Biblical radicalness operates not at the fringes of life. You're doing these weird and crazy things. Biblical radicalness moves to the center. Remember Isaiah? When he met God, he was in the presence of God, and he went right to the center, and there was a fire, a holy fire, as it were. And when we stand at the fringes, what that shows is, and we do these crazy things, sometimes it shows, that we're looking for an experience that will give us joy in life. God says you don't find it at the fringes, you find it right at the heart of God. The closer you are to God, the hotter it gets. 
Because God purifies our lives and sets us on in a new direction as we walk with him. And he says, let me lead you to the center of all this. And so biblical radicalness is doing what we know the script says you and I are to do. And it looks like we're so possessed by this that it looks like this consuming love has grabbed a hold of us. So that in, even in trouble, we will not deny our God. That's biblical radicalness. See, it's, radicalness is not doing your own thing. Because everyone has been doing that for a number of years. And as we walk through life, we begin to recognize that God is moving within our hearts and lives. We're going to switch to Ukrainian PowerPoint. Thank you. You see, everyone has been doing their own thing for year after year after year. That's not radicalness. That's selfishness. And so what God is doing is he's leading us into this. Doing someone else's thing, that's radical. You see, when you and I come along and we do what God asks us to do, he's leading us into a new direction. Go ahead. Give us one. Jesus is radical. Why? Because as he comes along, he is so radical that he's extremely faithful, extremely pure, extremely loyal, extremely full of love as he walks through all this. And so as we recognize this, so radical is Jesus' love for his father that he says, God, I'll even die for you. That's radicalness as we move to the center of where God is going along. Now, as we look at life, we understand that love is not just actions. It's never just actions. It's more than actions. It is coming along with something else in the process. And as God leads us through this way of loving, we begin to say, God, how much do you want to take out of me? Someone asked a physician, uh, or a physician once said, excuse me, that the best medicine for humans is love. The person asked, well, what if it doesn't work? The doctor said, increase the dose. And so as you and I walk along, we begin to recognize that in this whole situation, love is more than an act. God is taking us into the process. You and I can do the right thing, but do it grudgingly. And so God says, what I want you to do is I want you to move in this way. That you take your life, and it's the platter. Your life is the platter on which the love of God is going to be served to others. And so as you and I walk in this process, we begin to recognize that he's moving us in this way. Jesus was never forced to do anything by his father. He made a choice to do everything that his father asked him to do. So radical was this God. And so God says to us this. Somewhere inside of us, something has to, a switch has to flip so that we do things not out of duty, but out of love. It was a number of years ago that in our church in Winnipeg, we, uh, we had our Sunday school and we would send them out we tried for a while there, once a month, to send them out to do some evangelism. So this would be grades one to six. And so one day we piled them into the bus, and they went to St. Boniface Hospital, one of our major hospitals, and they had bags that they were giving out to the staff in the hospital. And um, so you're dealing with grades two, three, and four, and our uh, children's pastor at that time was walking with them. They handed out one to a, a doctor or an intern who was walking by, and Little guys were kind of nervous. It's kind of intimidating handing out bags to, of goods to people. It was almost time to get back to church. Um, and so there was one little guy that still had a bag or two. And so he um, was encouraged to pass this on. They walked into the atrium of the hospital. And little Liam, a little redhead, uh, 
said uh, to the gal that was sitting there, a nurse, I think, among other nurses, and I think asked her her name, Sophia, or what it was, was her name. He says, can I pray for you? And she said, sure. And he says, this is a grade two or three, I think, at that time. Is there anything specific? And she says, uh, my family. And the little guy drops on his knees in the middle of a hospital foyer and prays for this nurse. Unscripted. Right from his heart. Prays for this gal with other nurses around. You see, that's what God is asking us to do. When the times are there and we look at what God is doing within our hearts and within our lives, Jesus Christ did what was absolutely unheard of. No one had acted like him. And that's why you and I worship him and praise him. Because he is the son of God. And so what he tells you and me is when the trouble comes this week and you are treated unfairly, don't look at it as great unfairness. Take a look at the tool that God is using. Because through that, God is trying to work, and he's trying to move within our hearts and within our lives. So how are we going to deliver God's love with the trouble around us and with peace within our hearts? And maybe just three simple little ways that might help us in the process as we go through this. Love must be grounded in sense in order to put up with nonsense. So you're going to need to know what this book is about. And there's going to be a lot of nonsense that's going to fill your life. But God says, you're going to have to know why you're doing this. And so he gives us the second reason, and he explains to us this. He says, understand that this is the upper room discourse. And so Jesus says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my words so that you can make sense out of the nonsense and live this out in the midst of the community that God has placed you in. And then he says, okay, now you've gotten to see what the trouble is. You see what the word of God says, how different it is. Now he says, live this out. You're going to get dirt within your life, I'll guarantee you, this week. God says, don't waste the dirt. Plant the gospel in the midst of that dirt for the sake of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, would you lead us? Would you make us aware of what is happening around us. And when there's trouble, may we not be distraught or afraid, but may we understand that your peace can come into our hearts and show us what our Father did for us through his Son, a Son who was radical in his love for God. May we follow in your footsteps, we would pray for Christ's sake. Amen.